Hello and welcome to episode 48 of the 1099 for the week of June 27th, 2016. I am your host, as always, Josiah Renauden, and with me today is the senior gaming editor for Ars Technica, Kyle Orland. Kyle, how are you doing today? I'm not bad. How are you, Josiah? I'm doing great. It is, uh, it's been like 98 degrees here for the past two weeks, and it's finally like Ooh. raining and it's down to 79, which still sounds warm, but to me it's just been... It's been the greatest thing ever. Like I want to just go run outside, even though it's raining, just because it's it's not unbearable. It was at the point where my central air couldn't keep up with the heat, so even if you set it to like 72, it's stuck at 78 because it's so hot. So if you if you want to take a break from the recording and go uh, be a commercial for I don't know some sort of uh, <laughs> uh, cleaning product, you like I'll, that? I'll yeah, no. Just running I, around in the rain, yeah. Yeah, running around in the rain, exactly. I want to go, you know, do spins, bring it on. Like, I'll have the umbrella at the start, and then I realize, no, I don't need it, and I'll throw it away. I've all this planned out. It's gonna be great. Uh, yeah, don't move. Just it take the though. microphone out. Just take the microphone out there, and uh, we can keep talking. Yeah, it's probably waterproof. It's probably waterproof. Yeah, my sure, my yeah. main advice. This used to be a really heavy advice podcast. My main advice is don't ever move to Florida. Uh, I <laughs> I grew up right around like Pittsburgh area, and I feel like I should have stayed. Like this is wow. just a nightmare. Um, but I feel like it's my birthright in like 40 or 50 years that I'm going to have to retire there. So well, I'll keep that in mind. Yep. Yeah, it's probably going to be warmer by then. So good luck. Uh, so <laughs> uh, then we should probably talk about video games because I, I think we talked a little bit before. I like to talk to people who have been in this industry for a while and have really seen it grow and change over time because, you know, it's, it's not that old, but there's a lot of change that's happened. I mean, you've worked with uh, at least been published by Joystick, Crispy Gamer, NPR, EGM game, you know, I've worked at GameSpot for a while. You were game, you, did you freelance for GameSpot? Yep, just freelancing over there. And I mean, now you are a part of Ars Technica. I mean, you've been there for a long time. How many years has it been? Yeah, four years at Ars Technica. It's it's really weird still to me to hear that I'm one of the people who's been around for a while. <laughs> but I guess that's true. I start, I did this, started doing this free full time about ten years ago now as a freelancer. Yeah. And um. Ars Technica was actually my first position that's a full-time salaried position. Other other places I had contracts, and uh, it would be kind of like a half-time position, and then I'd fill in with freelancing. But uh, the last four years, I've actually had uh, a salary and benefits, which is really rare in this industry. There's just so few slots, and I feel extremely lucky to uh, have gotten to where I am. Yeah, no, and that's like it, – it's a good point because it's so hard to find – full-time work in this industry it's such a there's not a lot of positions out there and it feels like one opens up usually someone who has already been in one before or has a lot of experience is the one who kind of takes that spot i mean what what's that and then they hold on and then they hold on to it oh they hold on to it for dear life because like or if they if they get out of it yeah they move on to like (laughs) that's your best chance sounds like yeah no i know exactly what you mean but i mean i've been doing this uh not as long as you but i mean i started six seven years ago and it took me you know a few years to get into you know really writing for GameSpot and IGN and Video Gamer and doing all that kind of freelance stuff and uh I mean I am currently doing community management sort of PR work so Uh there's there's a certain route to get there I mean yeah what like you mentioned like what's what's it like finally having one of those established roles I mean how comforting is it to know that you don't have to do that freelance hustle and always send in all these invoices and make sure that your pitches are sharp and worry that, uh-oh, this month I might not be able to sell enough because they're not buying. Yeah, it's very nice. You know, Ars Technica gives me very pretty free hand in writing what I find interesting. And uh, obviously the audience uh, you know, likes what it likes. And when I started out, I feel like it took a little bit of calibration to figure out where – our interests align almost. I would write some stuff just to try it out and say like, oh, I like this. And then 
no one was reading it. And then I would write something else that I like. And then, oh, that one got a better response. So you kind of figure out uh, where you fit in uh, the audience because Ars Technica is it's been around since 1996, I believe, and a lot of the readers have been there for 20 years that whole time. It's a, it's an older audience. It's very set in its ways in some ways, uh, in a good way mostly, and uh, they have good conversations, but they, they know what they like. It's hard to uh, drag them along to things that uh, they don't find interesting sometimes. I mean, how long did it take for you to really kind of set into uh, sort of a groove of understanding what works? Because I don't think of Ars Technica as – you're going to go throw out like a top 10 Call of Duty games and that's going to be like the front page and that's the one. You you have to go for a different angle. I, I look at um Paste Games, Garrett Martin, who I think is right. great. Uh, they do different things there. They they don't just do the, you know, sometimes they have those lists, but they go for different angles. I've written for them and I wrote something very different and I've heard it did well and, you know, you never know what exactly you're going to get from each article. So when did you actually feel, of you know, you've been there for four years, when did you feel you finally understood, oh, this is the kind of stuff that the readers that I'm writing for want. I'd say it probably took uh, a full year maybe to really fully feel comfortable. Uh, I remember when I first started there, I felt uh, completely overwhelmed in a way, you know, going from being a freelancer and you, you can pitch things that you know you can write and, you know, you can fit, you know, this outlet will take this pitch, this outlet will take this pitch here. It was a very, it's a, a very demanding audience. They know their stuff. And if you make uh, a slight mistake or, uh, even have an opinion that they find uh, a little bit out there without defending it uh, completely, they will let you know. And it's it's a, a good audience for respectfully letting you know for the most part. It's not yeah. like the comments are full of trolls. In fact, the commenters at Ars Technica, I find some of the best uh, out there. You know, I I've, I've, I read the comments on my articles and usually not others. And so I've done that at a bunch of outlets now. And uh, the ones at Ars, I actually look forward to reading because it's usually – a respectful on-topic uh, conversation, uh, even if it can get mired down in the minutia sometimes. Uh, it, that keeps you on your toes. That makes sure you're, you're writing uh, accurately and yeah. defensively and making sure that uh, you know they're keeping you honest. You can't just uh, put some stuff out there and then, oh, if it's, if it's wrong, uh, I, no one will notice, no one will care. They, uh, they care, which it's, is nice. No, it's, it's great to have readers who care about like actually what you're writing and the you know i feel i started to become uh, friends with a lot of the GameSpot freelancers when i was writing a lot of reviews there and i really respected what they did and uh i always read their reviews when they came out so for me when i was writing reviews i was also thinking like all right this has got to be good enough that it stands up with these people it's got to be good enough that they read this and they're like oh this is thoughtful criticism this isn't just a checklist of man these graphics look rad and oh man this one music part so it's it has to be really nice to have readers who also kind of keep you in check in a certain Definitely. way, in that way. Um, and I, I think yeah. it might be different for you now if you were – like let's say if you're freelancing in 2016. Let's say mm -hmm. suddenly you are doing full-time freelancing. I mean <laughs> as you know, you've been this for 10 years. I've been this for six or seven. The industry's changed. Uh, you, yeah. I, I feel like for a lot of cases, um, if you want let's say a full-time job, you have to kind of have this – understanding of a little bit of all the different ways games are covered from streaming from podcasting from youtube you know and of course hopefully writing is important still uh <laughs> hopefully. and hopefully i mean yeah a lot of these things are you you look at an editor at GameSpot and they do a little bit of everything like they're on all the live streams and everything like that so i mean do you see written work like what you do and what i like to do 
as more or less important these days? And that's a hard question. Uh, that is a hard it, question. It, it's it's a difficult. It's, I hope it's a good question, but like, yeah, it's. Do you, do you think that it is more or less important? Because I feel like if I I'm a mostly a traditional writer. I have a degree in journalism. Uh, I felt like I needed to expand that skill set if I ever want a full time editor job. So, do you feel the yeah. same way? I don't. I don't think you can say anything except that it's less important. Uh, the rise of video means that. Uh, writing just isn't the focus for everyone anymore and it's it's driven by the ad dollars is my understanding that uh, a one view on a video can get you know five to ten times as much money as uh, one view on a written piece That's and sad. it probably will it probably will keep them around longer it's and it's just easier to consume you know it's uh, newspapers versus cable news in a way people some people want to read to get uh, details and uh, absorb the information faster and some people just want to turn on a video and uh, kind of get lost in it uh, in video games it's especially acute because it's a visual medium it's you with a video you get the sound and the audio of the game and you know the old saying about uh, uh, writing about video games is like uh, dancing about architecture <laughs> it's uh, you're, you're using a very odd medium to convey what uh, a game is about video is much closer it's not interactive but at least you can see and hear and get a raw reaction uh, instead of some thought out piece uh, obviously there's advantages to writing and you know that's what i trained for too i went into a uh, written journalism school uh, instead of going into broadcast and mm. uh kind of regretting that these days seeing how <laughs> hard vid- not hard video is yeah uh, so you kind of have everyone's kind of had to Coming from the writing side, you have to get these new skills in in video editing and production and figuring out how to do that. Now, the question is, how much less important is writing going to be in the video game space? Is it going to, you know, totally atrophy to the point where it's like uh, game magazines, where there's maybe one or two outlets doing writing and everything else is just uh, video? I don't think it will go that far. Uh, writing still has its advantages, especially as far as news and reporting. Um, when it comes to things like uh, previews or uh, reviews or you know, just listening to PewDiePie uh, scream about something for pure entertainment value, video probably has writing uh, over a barrel. But yeah. uh, when it comes to actually writing about the industry, doing in-depth analysis, I haven't seen much very good – you know, news and analysis industry reporting in the video space. Uh, that's And that's a large part of the journalism industry in the games. So for those people, I think writing will be important. Uh, for some people who want a written record of game criticism, that will that will still be around, but I, I feel like that's going to be much more impacted by video. Is that the next step, though, where we start seeing the the kind of the the criticism the news the that sort of stuff in the form of video where you can get these people who uh, I'll use Patrick Klepek for example who was also traditional writing and right. started to do more video essays and he's kind of leaning that way sometimes where he's taking yes. his skills and his reporting kind of acumen and moving that into a video space with just and right now it's pretty simple video it's cutting together certain gameplay or uh, Jim Sterling can do this very well sometimes where you take these ideas these uh, Things that would otherwise be features, add video to them, and it does add another element to it. Because again, we're talking about video games. We're talking about things that you want to see in motion. I mean, you can remember when 
screenshots were some of the most important things where you're sitting in a magazine <laughs> just staring at it like, oh my god, this looks so cool. And you know, the people the publishers are giving you these screenshots like it's this pot of gold, like we've just given you this amazing thing. And now, I mean, who cares about that when let me just see this thing moving. And you know, we're seeing more and more stuff in early access and uh, the audience understands that games can be rough at the start. So it's okay if you see this stuff in motion maybe a little bit earlier than it should be in motion. But do you think we could be seeing I, more? And again, another example, Video Gamer, they do a lot of great stuff where they have these... That's uh, true. When they're not doing like wrestling videos, they do like interesting looks at certain topics through video that sound like a good writer wrote it. So you think that could kind of be the future? Yeah, it could be. And even years ago, there was uh, that escapist video series whose name is escaping me at the moment. Uh, oh. Extra credits, insert. I'm going to forget like it, it was, too. Oh I feel my like God. it was extra credits. Yeah, you I'll, can, you can I'll, it'll, it'll come to me. Insert it in there. Um, so, yeah, there's there's a market for that, but I don't think – I don't feel like that's the direction video is really going. Like I don't have any statistics or anything, but those examples you pick out seem to be – uh, the exception rather than, you know, the just the guy playing on Twitch and, and saying, you know, whatever he wants about it or, or the speedrunner, uh, you know, drawing a lot of eyeballs and doing a analysis of the game God, in that there. That makes me feel so old. Like, watching <laughs> yeah. that stuff, I'm not even old, but watching that stuff and watching, um, again, I'm now working with the team who's making a game. And I've been, you know, you, you want to see all the content out there and all the opinions to get an idea of where you're at with it. And um, watching people in the corner of a video react to the trailer i just i don't i don't get it like i'm trying is, to understand it well I, I, and you know I'm, I'm turning 34 this year and i also feel a little over the hill i feel like this is how the people at the established magazines probably felt about uh bloggers 10 years Has ago to be, yeah and you know joystick and kotaku were coming up like oh man they, they put up this post in 30 minutes i i spent you know good a lot of time on this news story and, and it comes out in a month uh, you know, there's differences there. There's magazines really fell away, I think, because of just the the time advantage. For one, you had if you have to wait, you know, three weeks for the news or the opinion, that's just a horrible disadvantage. And also, you know, the pay advantage. Yeah. Uh, everything on the web is pretty much free, uh, whereas you know, versus you have to pay to distribute the magazines. That's just another huge advantage. Uh, when you're comparing writing and video on the web it's different advantages it's it's really the ability to see it but uh it's still free and it's still nearly instant so i'm not sure it's going to overwhelm to the extent that the old magazines did um but going back to the point about uh, what kind of content can be in videos if the news and analysis is going there i don't know if it's a an issue of supply or demand really that's impacting that there's there's not many people doing it but uh like i said i don't have statistics but i feel like there's not too many people trying to watch that rather than just wanting to see a game or see someone talk about a game and that yeah. kind of almost the entertainment side of the the video game youtubers rather than uh looking for deep critical reviews they just want to watch a personality being fun and funny while playing a game it's like hanging out at someone's house and having them on the couch and then at the end they say oh this game is fun it's uh you know i, I am sounding really old now but it's I mean, a different this is the, the like old curmudgeonly podcast i'm kind of into it uh and, and you know that's where all the video views and video dollars are going i think trying to get that audience to care about a reported piece that's in the form of video that's just as hard as uh getting them to care about that in writing as well i think that kind of reporting is never going to 
be as big as people who just want to, you know, have fun and uh, see people having fun playing games, read about what games are fun. Uh, The, you know, uh, in the written area, there's been a niche for that. The, the business side, people who care about the industry, people who work in the industry are just, or just that obsessed with games Mm -hmm. Uh, in video. I feel like it's much broader, but I don't feel like people are necessarily going to want that side of it as much. I hope it's right now, even if it never reaches the heights of someone doing a let's play and, you know, again, you kind of feel like you're on the couch with them. I I do hope that those sort of video essays, it's more of a lack of supply rather than no demand for it. Uh, Like I I do hope because I mean, I enjoy that stuff. But again, I don't know if I'm the outlier. I don't know if I'm the person who's not ready and willing to fully go over and really delve into those PewDiePie videos of him playing some horror game, Uh, you know. Again, maybe I am an older mind in this, and what I want is not what makes sense business-wise. But, you know, yeah. we'll, we'll see. We'll see how it plays out, because, I mean, all this stuff is still so early. I mean, we can't... It's hard to make sweeping statements when I feel like every year it changes. Yeah, I'm trying to think to analogize it to other entertainment reporting. You know, if you see movies, for instance, there's Siskel and Ebert reviewing movies and other film critics who, you know, for a while there were... On a lot of the news magazine shows, um, uh, Roper and uh, you know all the others, and then there were all, and then on the other side, I feel like it was mostly just kind of tabloid celebrity gossip driving it, you know, yeah. your uh, Entertainment Tonight or what have you, uh, and there really wasn't much market for you know here's the movie news without the celebrity angle. Mm. Uh, so I feel like maybe in video games the celebrity angle is kind of the caster. We don't have our own developer celebrities to most of them aren't even household names among the majority of gamers. There's, there's a few exhibit, uh, counter examples there, but uh, without that driving it, I don't know that um, just talking about the industry and uh, even, even the outside of business, just cultural issues or really things past, Oh, this game is fun. I don't know that uh, the market is, really there among the video audience at least not to the extent that it's going to compete nearly with uh, the video audience that has been proven already yeah and even if the video audience is there i mean my sense right now is that the actual maturity of some of the games writing we're seeing is at a level that when i started wasn't there the the, the topic yeah. tackled the actual and it's had a few writing and it's there. had a few decades to build up i think uh, Absolutely. Is, is that advantage and, and and on the video side it really hasn't it's also the the audience I feel like tends uh, skews younger for video, which you know only makes sense. They, you know, they grew up in a world with YouTube and uh, high speed internet connections, and they kind of absorb their data. So, you know, in ten more years, as these people uh, start to, the the bulk of that audience starts to enter their uh, late twenties, early thirties, maybe they will be looking for more professionalized uh, analysis of uh, larger trends rather than just. Uh, hanging out on some guy's couch virtually. God, I hope it, that that stuff is ready for them and still there by the time they get that age because you just never know what the way the industry goes. I, I was talking... In 10 years, it'll all be like virtual reality journalism. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe you're, not, you're touching you're the telling. words in 3D. I don't know how any of this is going to work. Uh, the, guys I was... at, the guys that tested are doing a uh, virtual reality talk show. I don't know if you saw. Oh, is it... um? So was it Foo that because uh, I yes. know that Will Smith has left Tested and now is doing that Foo show and that looks. Oh, really I thought cool. it was part of Tested. No, okay, he left so, and did start okay. his own company. 
So I wasn't even clear on that. Yeah. So yeah, that's that that could be the future. In ten years, we could all be virtual reality avatars doing talk shows uh, for people in 3D. I don't know if that excites me or terrifies me. A little bit of both. It's a little bit of both. I mean, I don't really. I, I by think... then I'll be, by then I'll be pushing 45, so maybe my avatar can look younger and buffer. That's true. That'll yeah, put on the buff settings. <laughs> I was talking to Greg Kasavin on this podcast not too long ago, and uh, I was kind of going on about how I think games criticism is much better and more interesting than it used to be. Because when I came up, I felt like I was following a template. And the template was always, all right, you start out with, you're going to kind of summarize the game in a sense and what your feelings are in a paragraph, and then you move on to the story, and then you move on to it yep. plays well, and then you move on to it looks and sounds good, and here's my summary paragraph. And it was very, I learned this in high school, five-paragraph essay style of almost like you're reviewing a camera or a TV instead of a quote-unquote yep. artistic work. And I feel like... And some people like, and some people like that. Some and people I think still, still want only that. that. Yeah, and I'm okay with sure. that. I, I think Obviously. one thing that I'm like okay saying is that there's room for a lot of reviews, and you shouldn't um, look at a review and be like, "That's that doesn't fit the standard." Like there shouldn't be a standard. There's a lot of different ways to look at a game. But he had kind of said in his mind, like when he was coming up, the same discussion was going on that you know, reviews oh. are better than they were before, and it was like he says he thinks that this stuff was going on before. Do you feel that? Do you feel like we were at a better place with reviews than we were before, or am I looking too much into this? No, absolutely. It, things have broadened to a wide extent. And again, it's probably the audience growing up. Uh, you know, the people the people who were reading game magazines in the 90s, uh, I think, were mostly like me. They were teenagers or younger. I don't think many 30-somethings were reading those magazines. And in that kind of environment, you find a person who's willing to work for peanuts and doesn't really need to be able to write. They just need to be able to play games yes. for, you know, X hours a day and understand and, genres and series and have like a yeah. deep knowledge of that to feel like they sound professional. Right. And some people, but yeah, and some people can write and ended up, uh, you know, staying in the industry quite a while. But for the most part in the nineties, there was, a, there were a lot of people who were hired because they knew games and were willing to devote their life to, crafting crafting sentences about them that were kind of coherent rather than you know really being able to write or criticize from a good angle and then as you get into the the, the 2000s the aughts uh you start to see uh see it growing up a little bit more uh as as the internet comes around i think that really opened it up people who were grow up with these magazines they realized hey i can write too i can try and get my voice out there on a blog it, it kind of lowered the gatekeeping a little bit so a little bit of the cream could rise to the top uh, just by you know starting a personal blog then maybe get noticed then someone hires you and you can develop more and more and it allows those kind of critical voices to get out there to the audience that uh, couldn't really sustain a magazine but could sustain a website it's a much larger readership uh, out there on the internet and even a niche can do pretty well and then as you've gotten into the last five years, I feel it's it's become a little bit more professionalized. The uh, the early blogs that were just kind of insurgents trying to get rid of the magazines and that old way of thinking succeeded. Mm -hmm. And now uh, you see sites like uh, Polygon or even these, these new sites that are coming up uh, like uh, Glixel or Vice's uh, new site that are trying to uh, mainstream this kind of idea that video games are a thing that people in middle age have grown up with their whole lives whereas 20 years ago it was seen probably rightly as thing mainly for kids 
it is I, I do feel like it's growing up and that was always the track to the one that the track the one that you mentioned before is that you saw you read these magazines you thought i could do that i, I can write about games i want to do that and you find a blog that's willing to publish you or you make your own and then you go through that and again i, I think yeah. it's different now because if you want to be on a game spot you need to not only be able to write on a blog you need to have your own youtube channel you need to make sure that you've been seen on camera or that you're able to talk coherently over video game footage so oh man yeah i don't know i don't envy the people coming up now oh, no. in, in freelancing i don't know how you do it Get, getting noticed now it's uh it's near impossible it, <laughs> the, uh, it's yeah. hard to and it's again i i've talk to i'm sure you get this too you get emails from people who are like how do i get your job or how do i get published uh-huh. in the sites you've been and yep. you know, i used to be very like okay here's what i did here's what you should do you should read this or go down this track but it, it is different now because i've been up for about two or three full-time jobs at major sites that i freelanced for and each time the only where i feel like i hit a roadblock in the interview process is when they're like all right what's your you know where's all your on-camera stuff where's all this oh. and this and you're like I yeah. like I've never it's hard to get that opportunity like yeah when I when I was coming up that was not expected you, that's the new like, can you write that now? was my first was question it. was how are you on camera what's you know what's this oh. like and it got to the writing at the very the writing was almost an afterthought and that's when honestly that's one of the reasons that uh, I ended up really wanting to and accepted the job doing uh, work writing work for a uh, uh, development house because mm. I realized the direction it was going, and I was like, I like I on camera stuff is cool, but I got into this for the writing, and like that's what interests me. That's what I am, you know, academically trained in. That's what I'm professionally trained in, and that's what I enjoy. So that was it was eye opening. It absolutely was. It was something so, that I didn't expect. So part of me thinks, and I, you know, there's no, I'm not 100% sure of this, but I part of me thinks that video is a little bit of a bubble right now and that does not mean that oh no one's going to be watching video in five years and we're going to go back to a glorious era where writing is all that matters no that's obviously not true but i think i feel like the ad dollars going towards video are a little inflated at this point people are really trying to find the next hot thing everyone thinks oh this show is going you know this guy's going to be the next pootie pie this guy is going to be the next uh zero punctuation you know everyone wants to get in on the ground floor of something that's going to be super hot and i think uh, the tree's going to shake out a little bit where they're going to realize hey some of this video content is really just because it's video doesn't mean it gets us uh, amazing traffic it doesn't get our brand out there from the advertiser's point of view it, it video isn't magic there's bad video and there's good video and i think some of the low quality people are going to get shaken out of there and it's going to be a more stratified uh environment like we've seen in the last 10 years with uh with writing you know some of the there were tons of blogs everyone was starting a blog everyone was going to be the next uh, kotaku everyone uh and then you know some of them managed to hang on but really only a few at the top level that could really sustain themselves with a with a staff and the others just kind of faded away people uh, a lot of these mid-tier sites that you remember from the 90s or the early 2000s they're closing down left and right they're just can't keep it up anymore uh i think we're going to see the same thing in video the ad the ad dollars are going to become less stupid a little bit and they're not going to just see oh video game video is the hot thing twitch made two billion dollars whatever they're going to say what's the value of this where where are the good really quality video producers and so that means there will be less video but it will be higher quality video that's getting paid for 
That's I mean, that's just yeah. my thought. No, I agree. I, I think everyone rushed to it, and that's understandable where it was starting to blow up, and it did start to be the thing. It still is in that mode right now where it's the thing, and similar to how people were making their own blogs, uh, people are making their own YouTube channels and their own Twitch channels, and some are succeeding and some are failing, and uh, the people who... If there's a lot of companies investing a lot of money in video, I, I do think some will soon realize that it's not just this gold mine, like you can put anything out there, you can hire pretty much anyone who will work for peanuts and you'll be just fine. It's it has to normalize a bit. It has to yeah. uh flatten out, which you know It's it's the old dot com boom and bust cycle and I've gone I've gone through it uh, a couple of times in my career now, just on the writing side. And uh you know, some of it has to do with the economy too. Coming, to the U.S. economy coming back from a recession yeah. right now is really booming. That will not last forever either. And when when that downturn happens, I feel like some of the the stupid money in video is going to be the first to go. No, I agree. I, it'll be interesting to actually watch. You know, again, if it maybe we're both wrong, it just keeps going up, up, and up. But I I don't think so. I, I think it has to kind of hit a certain point, and then people realize. Who are the people who are doing really good work and who are the people who are just there because they think it's popular? Uh, and quickly going back to the idea of, you know, kind of we're at a, a really nice, I don't want to say like golden age of games criticism, but we're at a spot <laughs> where it's better than I think it's been in a while. But totally. you look at the comments that aren't Ars Technica's comments and you look at <laughs> the, uh, the, if you look at a lot of people's Twitter mentions, uh, you get a lot of just kind of just really toxic stuff that comes at you for just saying that a game that they like might not be great. And I think a lot of this comes from people who self-identify as gamers, and that's part of their who they are. They get very closely emotionally and mentally tied to a series. Um, Metal Gear Solid 5, let's say, for example, where mm -hmm. even if I talk about problems with that game, people just get very personally offended because they relate to being a gamer. So when you try to go deeper than the surface level, deeper than saying, this game is fun, and you mentioned the you know thematic elements that might not work or how this doesn't really uh, work with this area of the game, they just get really angry. Do you think that we'll ever get to a point where deep games criticism, really looking at games as much more than the gameplay and, man, these graphics look sick, uh, do you think stuff like that, editorials, reviews, will ever be accepted by the normal, regular audience that plays games? Oh, there's a there's, there's a few things going on in that question. Um, I think there are definitely certain franchises where you go in knowing if I write about this negatively, I am going to hear about it. Uh, sometimes it's from the editor, even. Yeah. Um, some, but you know it's going to be from segments of the audience where they're just you know, it's got that name, Uncharted. You know, Uncharted Four. If you're less than glowing about it, if you give that game fans, an eight, you're gonna. Get destroyed. Eight. This is this is factually at least a nine point five. Yeah, so no, I, I think this game this it is a nine. It's not an eight. You're wrong. Like, oh, cool. My opinion's wrong. At, at the at the same time, that's that's a part of the audience. I don't know that it's as important a part of the audience anymore, um, especially on the video side, which is attracting people who, uh, you know, YouTube comments aside, they're people who just like to watch the video and are not as obsessed with uh, these franchises by and large uh, or you know the the console fanboys necessarily i think some some of these people are just uh, in it for the personalities and not as much for this is my system this is my franchise uh, fanboy uh type things yeah. um at the same time 
you're always going to have that that level of, of trollishness and uh, uh, you know obsession. And I think you'd find the same thing in any entertainment value venue. You know, if um, uh, in in music, I guess uh, I I don't even know who the big music uh, person would be these days. If um, let's, a Jay Z or a Rihanna, say Beyonce is probably Beyonce. pretty pretty good right I've now. I've heard that I've heard that name Beyonce. That's what the kids are <laughs> listening to these days, isn't it? Those those little whippersnappers. They yeah, love their they Beyonce. Love their Beyonce. Their lemonade. If uh, yeah, if someone came out with a you know deep criticism of of Beyonce that was was culturally attuned and was wasn't even super negative. Like I really love this album, but it's problematic for this way or that way or this video or whatever. I think they would also get uh, you know the Beyonce fanboys and fangirls out there saying, oh my God, you you hate Beyonce? How could you do this? You are the worst person. I hope you uh, lose your job. This and that. It's I, people really get a segment of the audience really gets caught up in entertainment to this level, the, the fandom. Uh, the difference, I think, in video games is for years and years that was the only audience for the enthusiast press. Mm. The, those were like 100. The fanboys were 100% of the people who were reading, you know, Ultra Game Players magazine in 1996, and I was one of them. And you know, I was a lot more fanboyish back then when when they uh, insulted uh, Nintendo uh, or did said uh, you know some N64 game wasn't good. I would I would go off about it, and uh, I feel like I grew out of it pretty quickly. But there are always new people coming in who are going to be that obsessed. The thing is now you know 20 years later, I think the audience has expanded to the point where there is actually an audience for more thoughtful criticism that goes beyond. You know, the latest AAA game is is awesome, like you thought it was going to be. There are people who will read that, and you might not see it reflected in the Twitter comments or uh, the comment threads, because by and large, I think they have other things to do than spending time leaving those comments. So you get a skewed view of the audience. But if you look at the readership numbers, uh, those things get attention, and it's not you know because they're clickbait or they're not. It's not because they're uh, you know, being counterintuitive and drawing people for that necessarily. It's because people are interested in hearing different opinions about games they're starting to. It's not as wide as it could be. Uh, you look at the Metacritic rating for big games, and it's always yeah. Well, it's, it's not, not diverse, I guess. Yeah. Yes. You uh, or even even for you know the low rated anticipated games, it's usually universally low. Uh, look at something like Mirror's Edge Catalyst, for instance. There were uh, the scores were much more clumped than I thought uh, they should be. Uh, I think there were only a few. Uh, that one maybe it started a out um, with a couple of like that was encouraging at the start because there were like some fives and sixes, then there were some eights and nines. You started to get some really varied stuff, and then the criticism started pouring in. That was all like universal seven. Uh, and that's yeah. when it got a little bit, but yeah, there's, de- there's definitely Metal Gear Solid again to bring that up five. That one was just like nine Everyone, tens okay. across the board. Right. And then all of the chatter afterward was about all these problems it had thematically and tonally and all that stuff. It's like, why didn't this show in the criticism that came out at the start that was so glowing? Like, why is it that when you say that, you know, this representation, this aspect of it didn't work, there's also, it feels like it's missing a third act of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, but because it feels good and because it looks good, nine and a half out of ten. Like, wait, wh- how do we? Yeah. How are we judging this? 
I think, yeah, I think a lot of it is the marketing still driving a lot of it. Um, I think there's the expectation that the, the people reviewing some of these AAA games are, are going to be fans uh, of the franchise. And if you if you assign it to someone who admits, oh, I'm not a fan of this franchise or, I you know, I only grudgingly played the first few or I didn't or God forbid I didn't play the uh, pre- predecessors of this game fully and to completion, then you get raked over the coals by a certain segment of the audience who expects, you know, reviews by that early reviews are going to be by fans for fans and pretty much confirm. Yes. You know, this game game X plus one is just as good as game X and will help you relive your childhood memories of, of fun. And all I want out of a sequel. (laughs) (laughs) feel like I'm a kid again. So there's, so there's cross pressures from there's from the marketing side and from the audience side to that effect. Um, we're not quite there yet as far as the maturity to be like movie reviews where even well-regarded movies, you can easily find a dozen people who have thoughtful and valid criticisms of, of it and are willing to print them. And, you know, some of them will get, uh, especially in like comic book movies, I feel, or sci-fi, they're going to get hurt by a segment of the audience, but there's not that, pressure to necessarily conform and say oh this is the this is the hot blockbuster movie therefore my audience is going to like it so i better like it that kind of subliminal push uh i think film criticism has had much more time to become much more well developed and it it's almost the opposite where if it's a big flashy blockbuster you want to show in, in movie criticism that you're above the audience uh, that uh, even if the plebeians are going to give this a uh, billion dollar opening weekend you have better taste than that uh, in, in video games it's the opposite if you have better taste than the audience you are the one who is wrong and uh, you should be criticized uh, for being that kind of critic or that you're giving it a lower score or harsher criticism because you want to be different. And that's always a sentiment that comes out there from people where it's like, Oh, you're just doing this. Cause you are again, looking for clicks. Yeah. You're looking for interest in that way. And, and that's impossible to disprove at some point. Yeah. They're just going to see what they want to see. Oh, exactly. Yeah. And at that point, if you start saying it's this person's opinion, then you get in the argument about people who just really strongly think that uh, reviews don't have like opinion doesn't have a place in a review and then you just start going in this odd discussion the circular discussion where you just get nowhere i mean i yeah i try to avoid started. yeah i try to avoid even getting started with that but it, it's sometimes people bait you in and then it's 30 minutes later and you're like what have i been doing this is not <laughs> this is someone who has a fundamentally different worldview. like it's just you know again i, I do think that we're going to get to a point where it is more accepted i feel like a lot of the early sites and again i'm not you know trying to rag on them or anything like that but it was uh, writing from people who were, you know, very strong fans of things, and it was kind of uh, enforcing that enthusiast opinion. And I, I was like you too, where uh, when I first got into, you know, really liking games, of course, you you have those fanboy tendencies. You, you know, I bought a PlayStation 3 when it was way too expensive when, when it first came out. So when people were trashing it, you have that kind of initial gut reaction of, oh no, I, I took this side, I put all my money down on this. Uh, you know, I want it to be good. So you start hoping that things are good. So when things get bad reviews, you're like, oh, this person doesn't know what they're talking about. Uh, mm-hmm. That you do grow out of that, and you hope that the audience. There's always going to be the people who are very loud in the comments saying that you are fundamentally wrong for disliking something I like. But hopefully that 
that that's not the norm and hopefully that's just the the strong out the strong and uh very vocal outliers and that we get to this point where we can have more nuanced discussion about games in that way uh and speaking of games and like maybe positive things for a bit we could talk about great things how about like sure. e3 happened you were at e3 yeah, uh, i was i there. was i was give, like from florida in the hot sun i was watching a lot of press conferences and games and stuff like that and <laughs> We were talking a little bit before we were recording about how you know there's a lot of publishers who had pulled out. There's a lot of a lot more open floor space, and it's E3 is in a weird place where it feels like a lot of publishers could kind of do their own thing if they wanted to, and not have the mm-hmm. same impact as E3, but maybe have a similar impact as E3, or partner with certain people, or go on Twitch, and suddenly you can still get that. I think it was the Battlefield One mm-hmm. event or something like that, where it still had almost as many people as some press conferences. So. Yeah, just uh, being next, just being next to E3. Exactly how they did it. Yeah. So I don't. It's weird because like I don't know how it's gonna go moving forward. But I mean, just beyond that, like what actually at this year's E3 grabbed you? I mean, was it was it VR? Was it a specific game? Was was it a specific trend? Was it just the kind of the the lack of things at the show? Kind of what was your report coming out of E3? Uh, virtual reality was definitely a big part of it. I I, I feel like we're seeing it. Uh mature a little bit for out of the uh tech demo stage we're seeing games like um the star trek bridge commander where it's uh you playing with four other people or three other people and actually taking a seat at the console like you're in the star trek universe that felt like a much more fully featured game uh games like eagle flight from ubisoft really getting the controls down um the unspoken from oculus uh, really gave you the feeling with the touch controllers of being a wizard and so that that was the most exciting trend to me, but um, as far as the show itself goes, I don't. I think it's a being a little bit overblown. The problems with E3, it still it still demands attention, uh, and it's still going to be the central show for a lot of the big publishers. There, you know, there's two halls to E3, and I think it was South Hall is the one with Microsoft and Nintendo and Sony, and there you wouldn't you couldn't tell that anything had really changed except despite the fact that nintendo only had one game at their booth and uh, a line around the block uh, in that booth in that hall uh, it really felt like the the big console makers were still deeply committed to using e3 as their big showcase for the year you know microsoft used it to announce its new hardware uh, tons of new games that no one had ever heard of either in trailer form or playable for the first time same old e3 then you go to west hall where EA was no longer there, uh, Activision was not there it, with a booth. They just had a small meeting area, so which left a lot of space for things like uh, there was some 3D dome that uh, uses projectors to show like art and video games in a 360-degree sphere above you. They had a huge floor presence. Interesting. Uh, there was um, uh, Razer or I think one of the other hardware uh manufacturers uh, peripheral manufacturers was there and they had like these inflatable chairs that you could sit on uh there was a virtual reality sex booth that had a lot of uh, <laughs> i heard about line. that yeah that's not really that they, that used to be it would have been in uh, kentia hall which was the the third hall that had all the you know really small companies that couldn't afford anything and like usb coffee warmers and stuff that wanted to be at ces really but but couldn't that's that's no longer there that stuff now is filling in space that used to be for video games. So in that hall, it was really a weird vibe, uh, very kind of ghost townish. So, you know, half of 
but but in that hall there were still you know 2K games and uh, Capcom had a very big booth for Resident Evil. There were still a lot of the the flash. So maybe half of half of E3 was really looking abandoned. But the rest of the show, you know, 75% of it still felt like E3s of recent past. Were there any specific games that really stood out to you? Because again, I I feel like VR we're not getting closer to a point where it's feeling less like tech demos and more like actual experiences built for vr mm. um it's that's still and it's still a pretty niche market uh, yeah it's still i think well what's your thought almost, on playstation vr and again like yeah. i you know full disclosure i'm working on a project that's you know built for it but uh I, i'm just interested as just an outsider about i think that oculus and uh, vive have come out and they're interesting but again there's a lot of tech demos it's they're expensive you need to have that you know yeah. That PC that can handle it, and there's so many PlayStation 4s out there right now. I mean, it's it's done better than I would have ever thought it could have. And now we're we're having this peripheral that you need that, and you already have the PS4 in your house. So if you have the money, why not? Do you think this could no. be something that could take VR into the mainstream? I think it has the best chance, definitely. Uh, for all those people who have PlayStation 4s, it's you know pretty much a $400, maybe a little bit more. It, intro price to get into this hot thing that everyone's talking about compared to you know 600 or 800 for the pc ones and that's if you have a really good pc and uh not as many people i think have a really good gaming pc as have just a playstation 4 hanging around their house at this point uh another thing is sony has the relationships with uh, all sorts of publishers and developers you really saw it at this year's show they they were just showing off so many games at uh your PlayStation VR experience, they keep the numbers they're talking about uh, kind of leaving Oculus and uh, Vive in the dust to, to some extent. Uh, you know, you see a lot of Steam VR games in VR, but a lot of them are really just, you know, people throwing stuff up and hoping it'll stick, but it's really just something that's like a something you play around with for two minutes. Uh, Sony, I think they, they said 200 games in development and they're going to be 50 at launch and they're it seems like they're going to be, you know, by and large, real games. Which is great, yeah. It's not just suddenly like, here's basketball throwing simulator where the hoop kind of works. Like, you want yeah, more exactly. than that. So, and Sony kind of demands more than that uh, yeah. from PlayStation experiences. So I feel like that's going to be the biggest push. Even if the, the hardware technology itself isn't quite as good, it's not quite the immersive experience that you get with the Vive, for instance, the, the cost and the Sony ease of use and publisher backing i think is going to uh give it a big push yeah Um, i don't know if it's going to matter too much that like you said it's not nearly as maybe not as intuitive or as fully featured as something like oculus revive i mean it's just you know from what everything i've heard playstation vr is just not at that level but is there a noticeable enough difference where you feel like you're getting a much lesser version or is it just kind of the difference between maybe the playstation 2 and the original xbox uh, it, I, it's not noticeable enough for the consumers. I feel they're not. They, maybe they'll try out the the Rift or the Vive uh, at a friend's house or at a store demo and say, "Wow, this is really amazing." For most people, uh, PlayStation VR is really going to be the only one they're considering because they're not. They're just not going to be in the market for a thousand dollar gaming computer. Consoles have had that advantage for a while, and that's uh, it's going to be the same thing in the virtual reality space. They're it, they're going to have a much larger just potential audience because of the cost issues. Uh, now, that said, I feel like these first-generation Rift and Vive units are kind of the, the proof of concept. Like, yes, this is what we, we see as VR. This it, it costs a lot to be this good, but 
but that's only for right now. You know, uh, they want to be in the market so that in two years, five years, when you know the thousand dollar computer is a two hundred fifty dollar computer that can do the same things, and when the hardware has uh, been refined enough thanks to uh, cell phone technology advancing that it you know it gets to be a two hundred dollar headset, then they want to be the people who can say, hey, look, you don't need a super expensive computer anymore. You can get that same experience that we were asking so much money for five years ago, uh, but now it's uh, actually accessible. Uh, does Sony kind of short-circuit that in the same way that uh, you know uh, the NES kind of short-circuited uh, gaming on uh, computers in the 80s? Uh, it's hard to say. And honestly, it's gotten me more interested in VR than anything else has because, again, everything else just seemed so like – that first wave was kind of the people who are super into technology and they're going to get no matter what comes out with that sort of VR stuff. And this is more of the thing where I'm like, you know, I can actually see how this works with real games now. And I could see that, you know, I have a a pretty powerful uh, PC, but like maybe not powerful enough that I, was like, I don't want to upgrade and then get right. the headset. This just feels more like, hey, just buy this one thing and now you have VR in your life compared to buy this thing, upgrade your PC and then moving forward, you probably got to continue to do a lot of upgrades to make sure that it can actually keep up with this. So it at least has me, as a more casual VR person, interested. It has me interested in seeing what happens with that and if there is enough software to actually support it as we move forward. Uh, so one more kind of state of the industry thing, because you had mentioned Glixel mm. before, and I think that's really interesting right. to talk about. I'm going to have uh, John Davidson on the show to talk oh, more great. about it because it's it's I, I want to know what that's you know what is this about because we look at it in zam is something recently that that was a site before but now there there's a greater push there's a greater number of freelancers and uh, a lot of great content coming out of them you think tencent for uh, that one yeah exactly tencent. uh and like austin walker is now doing um what i'm guessing is to be great things advice because he's uh mm-hmm. you know i worked with him for a bit when he was freelancing at GameSpot, and he's just really great at what he does um and it's weird because we talked about how a lot of people are rushing to video because that's what's making money and now there's also this weird subsector that's kind of rushing back to this culture games writing which i guess is different than the sites that have recently closed down um what do you what do you see this as like what is this a movement is it we going to see more of this and again i don't want to think of this as like oh here's these people who think that gaming is big they want to throw some money at some sites because i think if they saw gaming is big they would throw money at certain streamers or YouTubers or something like that. But this seems more like, again, good, interesting critiques and writing and editorials. I mean, why do you think there are these three major players that are doing this? Well, you have uh, you know, Rolling Stone and Vice now getting into it. So if you, you had one more, if, say, Time Magazine started its own uh, video game vertical, then I, it would be officially a trend. Oh, man, what with, if they do three that? three people. That would, that's the one that, you know, that's the one I thought of at first to be like oh they're doing this we might we must do it too but the old publishing brands part of me thinks it's just the same old cycle of uh the industry uh the economy's doing a little bit better and uh, so people are looking to expand in a way that you know the last five years starting a new vertical uh was really like what We're, we're we have to just focus on not firing people the ad dollars have, have fallen down the tube since the recession hit no one's reading anymore and video is all that's doing anything now you know videos out there and kind of saturated but people are look people who are have grown in print in the industry are like okay what's the next hot thing and they're seeing yeah. hey video games are are relevant again and now 
oh, the economy is doing a little better. Maybe we can actually sell this. And it, it's yet another attempt to see if there can be a video game outlet that can sell ads to for more than just video games uh, from the business side. Uh, it's it's been attempted. You know, before Kill Screen was out there, and really just uh, on a subscriber model of uh, very much more thoughtful writing, and they're they're still around in some form, but not quite uh, the way uh, they were thought of. And there were ones before that. Uh, every time it happens on, on the peak of the cycle, I feel like it has a better chance because the audience has gotten a little older, a little broader. Uh, people who play video games are not quite as narrow a subset as they were. It's It still remains to be seen to me, though, if it can be as broad as movies or music or uh, other entertainment. Uh, it doesn't have that star factor driving it, for one, which uh, hurts a little bit in the general audience. And it's still, despite the growth, I think the dominant force is still these... Uh, hardcore gamers if you will that uh, have grown up with this stuff and they know what they want and they're the ones who've driven video game journalism for decades now and are still the bread and butter of making the money you have to even if people even if other people are playing games you have to convince them that there are interesting stories to read about games and that is an uphill battle to the effect that you know these new sites will become destinations for them Maybe they'll see an interesting article linked from uh, social media or some such, but it's very, very hard to build a destination site these days where people like bookmark it and go there and say, oh, I want to read uh, you know, what Glixel has to say about the latest video games. People who are really into video games obviously will be in that market, but they want to grow that beyond, I feel, to people who occasionally play video games or play different types of video games than you know the, the first-person shooter uh, focused uh, readerships of uh, some of the enthusiast sites yeah is that going to be a market i i'm i'm pessimistic but i hope i'm wrong if that makes sense no i i totally get it and it's hard to become one of those sites that people just automatically visit on a daily basis it's hard to become like when someone when they're at work before you know they're kind of getting ready they're they open their email, they open up maybe ESPN, and suddenly ESPN is just that daily, almost like your fingers automatically type it in. Um, I was that way with Grantland for a while, and because of that, I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, I'll give The Ringer a chance, but uh, you know, what's the hook for Glixel? What's the, I mean, a lot of people who like Austin Walker might follow him to Vice, uh, but I mean, what's, even though I think there's a lot of great content at Zam, what makes hopefully. you choose, yeah, hopefully, what, what makes you choose uh, Zam over anything else? And I feel like they have to know something I don't, because... I mean, something like Giant Bomb, I think the only reason Giant Bomb exists is because there's so many passionate fans who are willing to do that subscription model, and I love the guys there. I think they do a great job, but if it was just ad dollars, they couldn't yes. function. Right, um, but that's that's heavily on the enthusiast side. Exactly. But again, when you're going for the more general audience, like they seem to be trying to be you know, maybe uh, New Yorker-style cultural criticism uh, through the lens of video games or, or you know rolling stone would be a very good example of you know rooted in music but also uh, politics and culture and uh, everything like that and but you know rolling stone is almost unique in a way it's it's the one that made that work and, and stuck around as a brand where others kind of fell away um so uh, for one starting a brand now is is very tough uh, to just uh 
in the social the way people are consuming news and getting it through just what's linked on social media doesn't really encourage those kind of uh, thoughtful verticals and in another way i don't i feel like you know around books or music or movies there's been an established audience that kind of looks is, is really on the lookout for that kind of broader uh criticism especially in in books you'll see like uh, something like the the new york review of books uh, their reviews are about the book but really they use the book as a jumping off point for all sorts of uh, criticism of, of society in general and people really are looking for that from book reviews are are people looking for that from their video game reviews or do they want even different kind of coverage you know just deeper talks with creators in uh, the industry that go beyond the the talking points or uh, some of the other stuff we see and it's it's very noble writing and it's it's very intriguing to me but uh, from a business standpoint i'm a little skeptical that uh, it's that the audience is there to the extent that it can it can sustain yeah. a whole outlet rather than being just you know a part of a of a, a brand like the new yorker or the new york times or uh, you know the occasional article in there that's what i'm worried about and that's why i think i think this is the kind of writing we need in this industry it helps us grow up and become better and evolve but i mm-hmm. again i feel like they the people who are funding this and backing this must know something i don't because if you just say on its face like Here's you know these three types of sites that are going for this type of writing, and Zam's a little bit different, but I also kind of group it up here. Uh, I don't know how that succeeds financially, um, but yeah. it's, well, it's not, uh, it's not like, my money, but yeah, I mean, they, <laughs> I mean, it's it's and it's worth a try. It, it's worth seeing. I mean, when it's not my money, it's worth a try yeah, to see if uh, these things are working. But I feel like the better way in is to find an established audience of people that look for that kind of thoughtful writing at you know the big. Uh, you know, a magazine like GQ or New York or things like that. And a lot of them, those magazines have uh, expanded into writing more about uh, games and technology from a, a human and societal uh, standpoint. Uh, I, I know Simon Parkin's work, whenever I've seen him uh, go to some of these uh, sites has been, uh, or outlets has been uh, amazing and just definitely written not from the uh, enthusiast point of view. And I feel like that's the kind of thing that will draw even a reader who who barely plays video games or doesn't know the video game in question, they'll see this kind of coverage and they'll say, oh, okay, this is an interesting way of, of writing about video games. And we'll, we'll see that more and more when there's a story that deserves it in these, you know, cultural journals. But uh, right now it's only, you know, there might be one of those a month if you're lucky uh, in a magazine like that, trying to sustain an entire site on something that seems to be go towards that or maybe straddles the line between that kind of writing and the, the uh, enthusiast writing that you need to survive on a day-to-day basis, that's a, that's a tough needle to thread. Oh, without a doubt. And I would go about it the way you just described of, you know, going for the established audience, then slowly introducing games and seeing how that works. But again, I'm rooting for these people. And I, I hope if this works, that's extremely encouraging. That shows there is an audience for that. And that shows that uh, we have grown up, and there's 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 a wider gaming culture and audience that that I knew about. So I I am rooting for it, and I'm interested in seeing how it goes moving forward. I'm just happy again; it's not yeah. my money. And if, if it fails, I don't think we should. I wouldn't read too much into that either. Even if you look if you look at other entertainment, uh, that kind of high end, you know, really thoughtful writing 
it, it's very hard to sustain an entire vertical or an entire magazine or outlet just based on that. Yeah. Uh, uh, usually, you need to find some middle ground. Uh, I mean, Entertainment Weekly kind of way where there's there's some middle brow criticism and also some star watching, and uh, you get uh, an audience that comes for one or the other and uh, can sustain or maybe both and come can sustain itself. If but you know, there's really very few extremely high-minded you know movie review websites that are blowing up uh, media and uh, hiring dozens and dozens of staffers. It's mostly you know, a guy writing for a newspaper or uh, something like that. No, I agree. Um, Kyle, if people want to find your work, find you on social media, what's the best way to do that? Kyle ORL on uh, pretty much everything. Uh, Twitter is where I spend way too much time writing little one-liners instead of uh, writing articles sometimes. (laughs) And uh, arstechnica.com slash gaming is uh, my baby where uh, everything I write and edit pretty much goes up these days. Are you still uh, working with freelancers? If people want to write for Ars Technica, can they contact you? Yeah, we're definitely always taking pitches. So we don't have quite the budget that I would love. Uh, there's plenty of stuff that I would like that uh, we can't really uh, pay the rate that needs to be paid. But uh, I always love to hear from freelancers. All right, great. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for sitting here and talking and going over the early curmudgeonly stuff because I that's what <laughs> I get into. I'm just like, man, if only things were the way they used to be. But, uh, really, back I'm in happy. the day. I'm happy with the way things are turning out in a lot of ways. And uh, yeah, hopefully we can do this again after maybe sites like Lixel and Vice are out there and we can see where they're at and kind of at least, yeah, of course, not base the entire future on their success, but kind of understand where we're at from how they're doing. You know, spe- speaking of being curmudgeonly, I, n- I never got a chance to write for Nintendo Power before oh. it went away. And that was, you know, if you told 12-year-old me that that was uh, the thing you would miss. I would, you had this career and you missed that chance. would be like, oh, man, you really blew it. Oh, well, we'll, we'll start. We'll revive Nintendo Power. All right. We'll have the <laughs> Nintendo Power 2.0. And then yes. it'll essentially be the same thing, but better because it'll be your website. N- Nintendo, if you're listening, I will uh, volunteer to be editor-in-chief. Yeah. For you, uh, you know, if they're you're great for at understanding how media works and how all that <laughs> stuff is going. So Nintendo's a perfect choice. So uh, look sh- for that in the future. <laughs> so thanks again, and thank you everyone for listening, and hopefully tune back in for the next episode of the 1099. <laughs>